From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Remember, Colin, back in the day when they had that whole thank goodness it's Friday thing going on, and yeah. usually it was like a kitten hanging from a branch in a tree or something like that? Something like that. Back in, in the poster <laughs> era? Remember the poster era? That era, I don't. That must have been before my time, even. Yeah, it might have been a little after your time, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, but at any rate, it is Friday. We have made it to Friday. And you have uh, audio evidence of the presence of our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, if you'd like to be part of the program. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 205 271 2985, and we will uh, even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com, or you can text your question to Colin. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And your host, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Survived the great snowfall of January 22. Yeah, that was, that was, that was, uh, uh, four hours of of sheer terror, wasn't it? Uh, you know, it, it was. Um, <laughs> mostly because of the snowball fight in our front yard with what there was of snow, and it wasn't that much. <laughs> well, you yeah, if you wanted to, to have a, a real battle, you would have had to have done it at 2 a.m. Right. That, that, that would have been the peak of the snow cover, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it didn't. So... So you never had you never had like a po you never put a poster of like the Bay City Rollers up on your wall to impress a girl or anything, huh? No, <laughs> no. Now remember, we there is what my wife calls the lost decade of the '80s, between seminaries and being in Rome and Portugal for five years off and on. Uh, I missed a lot in the '80s. So yeah, I'm talking they, about the '70s. Yeah. At sea and uh, life, I guess. Yeah, okay. Well, there you have it. No problem. <laughs> um, still a couple of open lines if you'd like to talk about Colin's uh, adolescence and post-adolescence. <laughs> the number is 833. Please don't call. <laughs> 288. We have Andrea from Birmingham on the line. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see here. Um 
So let, let me ask, well, first of all, let's, let's talk about this to begin with. Yesterday was the Feast of the Epiphany, mm-hmm. and uh, which, of course, is the time, the point on the calendar when I can no longer criticize people for taking down their Christmas decorations. So that time mm-hmm. has passed, and uh, I will go to reconciliation, and uh, it'll all be good for us again. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I, have, I have made progress, though. I don't really require yeah. people to keep everything up until the baptism of the Lord in February anymore. So that's, uh, I've, I've made progress uh, in, the, in letting the Lord soften my, my heart. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as we continue in this Christmas season, um, you know, the, the, the Feast of Epiphany, uh, very important. And we talked about this uh, in pretty great detail yesterday with Father Brian Mullady. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wanted to stress the emphasis of the responsibility that we, especially we, the laity, have in keeping that epiphany moment going really every day as we go about our lives, right? Uh, you know, that's that's true. Um, I'll answer that question, then I have a comment on your seasonal question. Um, yeah, the epiphany means the manifestation of God. This is when the Lord, through his incarnation and his humble presentation is as a babe in the manger or in the arms of his mother, was made manifest to the world as represented in uh, the three magi who were Gentiles. They were not they were not of uh, Jewish descent, of Abraham's descent. And so, therefore, they stand for us. And they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to rep- recognize his kingship, his divinity, and, of course, his mor- mor- mortality in his uh, salvific role at his death. And this is something we, it's part of the church's mission to really continue that till the end, until Christ returns at the end of time. Because we are the ones who bring to the world uh, the truth of the mystery contained in the babe in Bethlehem, whom the, these Gentile kings, uh, whatever they were, astrologers, wise men, uh, I think Magi is taken to be uh, in most of the ancient peoples, whether among the Celts or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or others, a, a class of people who were the, the intellectuals of their day. And they were, they were looking around in the world for indications of its direction, and they saw in the heavens this indication. We are called in the church to read the signs of the times as well. The Second Vatican Council makes a big point of this. And in reading the signs of the times, we can understand how we can be bringers, evangelists in the world of our day to the people we met, meet. So that's really, I think, the, the sense to see the extension of that feast throughout the liturgical year, throughout the, the secular year, is we are the ones now in this day who will manifest the Lord to others, um, you know, the 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 greetings at the end of Mass remind us of this duty and this responsibility to go out uh, to others. Ite misa est, to go, the Mass is ended, but in a way to be Christ for others. And so that continues to be our duty. On the calendar question, I think it's interesting because we have this innate desire to extend Christmas. The Franciscans, generally because of St. Francis's love of the, of the infant Jesus, his uh, invention of the, of the manger as a, you know, uh, a, a way of honoring the Christ as the Christ child, 
Uh, and Mother Angelica in particular, uh, she built this huge uh, manger scene up at uh, the shrine in Hansville, which uh, go, is year-round, or year-round scene, uh, and has a special devotion to the child Jesus, El Divino Nino. Uh, that's something, too, that we, we innately want to do. Now, the old calendar made that somewhat clear, because all of January up until the to till Candlemas to the Feast of the Presentation or Purification. Uh, that's, a, that's actually what I meant to say. Yeah. Was that I, I well, used to I, hold people to the Feast of the Presentation, which is early February. That's right. And I speak Jack, and so I was able to interpret that a little <laughs> bit at least <laughs> and understand where you were going. And I think we, we, we can do that, even though the calendar today speaks of the time after the baptism of the Lord is the ordinary time. Uh, I think it is still a very useful practice to maintain some signs of the Christmas season in the home, whether it's uh, a Christmas tree or a manger or something like this to be that continual reminder. You know, it's interesting because I think, you know, and and really as a new convert some, you know, Lord, 20 plus years ago now, um, you know, I, I had heard various things, you know, you hear different things from different mm-hmm. people and different families have different practices. And of course, you know, I always talk about, you know, we do have some people on our street that have their Christmas tree out to the curb before they go to bed so Christmas day. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and for them, it's for them, it's over. Um, but, um, you know, and I, and I think that as these, these, you know, whether it be the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the Epiphany, uh, whether it be the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, whether it be the Feast of the Presentation, um, you know, I think that that back in those days, in my in my nearly unbridled zeal, um, you know, I just took the the Feast of the Presentation to be the most challenging, mm-hmm. and therefore it had to be the most pious, and therefore that's what I'm going to do, and you know, piety for piety's sake can can cause some problems, can't it? Right, yeah. I mean, there's always the question of, you know, as a universal church, somebody, you know, take Harry Truman's phrase, the buck stops here. The buck has to stop somewhere, or the lira, as the case may be, or I guess today it would be the euro stops here, with the Pope. And so uh, the council, the calendar has been changed, but that doesn't mean that uh, we don't recognize the other 1900 years of history and that we're not trying to, you know, evade uh, the implications of that. And I think we're not trying to evade the implications of the nativity uh, celebrating the new calendar, but also in whether we celebrate the old calendar uh, as well. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, several of our EWTN radio family members are celebrating their anniversaries this week. KHNA in Sheridan, Wyoming, is celebrating seven years on the air. TOTUS 2 is Catholic Radio in Gainesville, Georgia, celebrates six years with EWTN. And Christ Our King Radio in Louisiana is celebrating ten years of great Catholic radio programming. Congratulations to all 
are members of the EWTN radio family. And a brand spanking new offering that is not so brand spanking new, but it is a uh, it's the feature feature selection of the month for January from EWTN Publishing, and it's Graceful Living Meditations to help you grow closer to God day by day, written by the most beautiful author that God has ever brought across our paths, and that would be the lovely and talented Johnette Williams. Um, now, when you order the book, it's going to say Johnette Bankovic, because contrary to popular belief, she, she did not learn to write after we were married, so she did... Uh, uh, do a, a significant body of work prior to to that happening. But in Graceful Living, Johnette shares pearls of wisdom from the saints, doctors of the church, and holy men and women. It's designed to help you grow closer to God. Each daily reflection will prompt you to delve deeper into your prayer life and self-examination. You can explore the timeless wisdom of the church with Graceful Living meditations to help you grow closer to God day by day. Uh, by Johnette Williams. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Um, first up today is Jim in the great state of Ohio. He's listening at EWTN.com. Jim, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, hi, Colin. Uh, hey, I Jim. was watching a, online a recording of a streaming mass by a rather creative priest in terms of the liturgy. Uh, with the uh, consecration of the uh, precious body, he used the correct uh, form and matter. But when it came to the uh, consecration of the precious blood, and I listened twice to see if, to make sure I uh, heard it correctly, he said, take this, all of you, and drink of it, uh, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and elastic covenant, which we poured out for you and for many for their goodness of sins. Now, I don't know if he meant to say <laughs> everlasting, but it sounded like he said the blood of the new and elastic covenant. And my question was whether the use of that phrase it basically invalidated the consecration. Well, the short answer is no. Um, the, the common and probably close to universal as it can get Opinion is that the words which specify what is taking place there, this is my body, when Christ is saying, this, holding bread, is my body, is now bread, and this is holding the chalice of wine, my blood. So, no, um, I I'm hope that was uh, something silly that slipped out. Um, uh, we older folks, I don't know how old he was, but we older folks sometimes, uh, I use pregnant instead of present in a meeting the other day. Uh, it, it actually worked out but linguistically, but uh, it's a lapse, of, a lapse of attention, perhaps. And maybe that was it, and maybe it wasn't. But in any case, from the theological point of view, it would not have done it. If it was a mental lapse, then obviously it is without any culpability, although objectively shouldn't have been done. Uh, if it was done intentionally, now you can speak of it being an abuse, a liturgical abuse, uh, with uh, some moral fault attached to that. So, uh, But in terms of those who receive communion and the validity of the Mass, that would not, uh, would not affect it. Does that help, Jim? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. Next up is Michael, a first-time caller in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Michael, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Hey, Michael. Yes, I have a question. So, um, sometimes I'm in the middle, and it is a serious question. So, uh, I was just wondering, what is more important? Um, my wife and I, we and daughter, we go to Mass every week. And, but anyway, what is more important, uh, to visit in-laws or to, uh, I live five, six hours from my parents. And or to visit like a basilica, which my wife uh, we try to go to once every year, and sometimes that kind of stands in the way of visiting my in-law or my parents. And I was just wondering what your opinion is. It's like basically five, six hours either way in mm-hmm. opposite directions. But like I said, it stands in the way sometimes. And I was just wondering your view on what is more important. Okay. I will cite Padre Pio's view, St. Padre Pio. Duty before everything, even something holy. And I heard many years ago of a spiritual director who, to a very pious woman who would rush to get out the door every morning, uh, haphazardly or quickly at least, getting her husband and kids fed and off to school to get to Mass and sometimes uh, didn't. A divided loyalty. Duty before anything, even something holy. So the moral law determines, obviously, what is morally right and wrong. Our vocation gives us a certain set of responsibilities which we should take as coming from God. And then the church's positive law regarding things like Sunday mass attendance and so on uh, sometimes can't be fulfilled because of other obligations, Uh, work obligations for those in certain professions, certainly, uh, or just necessity. So I think that's the way to look at it. I don't think I can solve your complex question in terms of distances, availability, and possibility of that. But that's the thing to be, I think, the, the way, the framework in which to judge it. And that is, we have an obligation, a duty of charity towards family, uh, even towards visiting the sick. If it was a choice, you know, well, you know, I, I, I can't visit you, Aunt Sarah, even though you're sick and provide you some comfort and so on and so forth, uh, because I just have to go to Mass. I go to daily Mass, and, I, you know, I've just got to go. If I don't go, you know, it's a horrible day for me. There's something missing in, in that attitude. Uh, the Lord wants us to manifest our love for him and our love for our neighbors. So I think you yourself must reconcile the various circumstances, but I think that's the framework in which you can you can do that. You know, it's great to visit a basilica you love, but maybe your relatives need visiting too. Or the travel path doesn't permit the visiting the relatives of one group, but does permit visiting the other. In those things, you're making practical decisions, and I think um, those are circumstances that uh, you have to figure out yourself, frankly. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate the phone call. 
EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Ignacio in Tacoma, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Ignacio, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, hi. Yes, uh, I'd like Colin to explain if it is a uh, moral stand to miss Mass on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he said, just a grave offense to God. Um, yeah, I always thought it was a, a moral sin, but can he explain to me? And also, one more thing. Uh, but I, which, which day of the week? I heard Monday. Sunday. Sunday, okay. Yes. And what was your second part of that? And second part of that, can you please, please describe God ex- ex- exactly how it is and, and, and what it is? Okay, well, uh, I'll do my best, but you know, you, the the difficulty uh, uh, obviously is obvious. Um, yeah, it's sort of like the previous question. The Sunday Mass obligation is what's called a positive ecclesiastical law. The divine law is to keep holy the Sabbath. That can be done in a lot of ways. The Jewish people do do it with the synagogue, with maintaining, uh, you know, close family uh, relationships on that day, you know, not running all over the place. Uh, You know, that's one way. The Christian way, the Church has specified for the Christian Sabbath, which honors the resurrection as opposed to the creation as the Jewish Sabbath did. Uh, It looks to the resurrection as the high point of salvation history in terms of what God has done for mankind. And in doing that, obviously, we need to make that day holy. And the Church specifies that with a positive law, and that is that Catholics have a duty to get to Mass on Sunday. Positive law is something that, as I described to uh, Michael, I believe it was, who called, that is something that can go away in circumstances. Clearly, you know, snowstorm, you can't get to Mass. You're not obliged. Distance. Uh, the church doesn't expect you to drive all over his creation looking for a mass and spending an hour, hour and a half, two hours doing that. So there is a physical impossibility there. Uh, obligations of charity, as I described to Michael, those things can get in their way. But yes, ordinarily, barring such moral or physical impossibilities of sickness or weather or circumstances or necessary work or travel— uh, these can make it difficult to find a mass. You're traveling, you can't, you know, you can look. We have the great, you know, um, was it mass.com, mass, whatever that website is. Masstimes.org. Masstimes.org. You can find masses. That's easy if it's along your path. If it's not, uh, then there's no, the obligation can be set aside. So those are the kinds of things. But ordinarily, you know, you're you're in your own home. You can get to Mass. You're not sick. Uh, I think in COVID time, there's being sick, and then there's fear of being sick and taking those precautions. That that can all intervene, as the bishops have all described in their uh, in their letters on these matters. Uh, and so, but when none of that applies, then if you can get to Mass, you should go to Mass. You can't just say. I don't feel like it this weekend. That's not a good spirit. That's the wrong spirit. That's where there is sin. Now, it's a grave obligation of Catholics. Therefore, the willful 
and knowing rejection of that obligation, whether altogether or on a particular circumstance for insufficient reason, for an unjustified reason, would be a mortal sin. Now, culpability can all vary, and that's something that confessors can help sort sort out for you. Uh, but that's the nature of the obligation, the nature of how it can lapse under different kinds of impossibility or difficulty. And circumstances generally will determine whether you have such a, a possibility. Of it's Open Line going. Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Wide open phone lines for you on this Friday, EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. If you'd like to be on the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A couple of open lines and uh, plenty of time for your calls. Joe's watching us on YouTube, Colin, and he says he's been given a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it seems that it is not meant to be read as a page-turner. His question (laughs) is, what is the best way to read it? Well, I don't know that you're going to read it as a page-turner. If you mean by that, you're sitting down with a novel, and you can't just wait to get to the next story, paragraph, you know, and you've read a chapter, and you start chapter two, or whatever. Uh, I think you have to look at this as every one of these sections, because it's broken down by the uh, the categories of the faith, the creed, the sacraments, uh, prayer, and uh, the commandments. So moral and prayer life and uh, the sacramental life, the church life, and then the creed. And within that, there are the subdivisions of the different things, the seven sacraments. In prayer, it's the seven uh, phrases that are in the Our Father, which actually encompasses all of the mystical mystical life, uh, as the Catechism will show, and the commandments, of course, the Ten Commandments and everything associated with each of those commandments. So I think the thing to do is to, you pick a paragraph or a section and you read it carefully and you try to understand that, to integrate it, because there's nothing more helpful, at least I've found this in theology, and that is as you build a sort of a framework in your mind of the of the what the faith is you now you're filling the shells you're filling the shells with different things and it is like building a house uh whether it's the house of prayer the mansions which uh, for example are spoken of by the mystical doctors or in this case in the case of the creed you're you're building the house and so our faith in god is primary But secondarily are all those things which we know about God, which the scriptures and the church and the magisterium have affirmed. Those are the things that we can know about God. And so we're reading about those and we're trying to fit them on the proper shelf and to get this whole whole view or holistic view, word popular to use today, holistic view of God in his relationship within himself, with Christ and the incarnation and redemption with creation, with mankind, and among human beings, uh, and in our own prayer life, back to returning to God. And so each of these are discussed in the Catechism, and each of these are sort of part of that whole tapestry of the faith which we can populate as we learn more and more. And there's no better way to learn 
than an authoritative way. And so, thus, John Paul, in promulgating the Catechism, said this is an authoritative means of, of teaching the faith. Not saying it's the perfect means, and you can nitpick the expressions and terminology and the way things are explained in there, but that it can be, it can be, it's an authoritative basis for understanding what is the faith, as contained in like the great creeds. And so we use that and we populate, as it were, our own house of faith so that it becomes a reflection of Christ's own house of faith. And only the church can help you do that. You know, as, as good a teacher as a particular radio or TV personality is or, or priest or uh, sermon uh, homilist or whomever is, ultimately the standard is the church. And so we make our house of faith an image of what the faith of the church is. And we can do that in one way, by reading the catechism. And the earlier catechisms were intended to help us do that as well. And whatever catechisms come out from the church, such as the uh, adult catechism for the United States put out by our bishops' conference, all of these things are ways of helping us populate our house of faith so that it is a, a, a good reflection of the true house of faith which comes to us through the church. So, Colin, I have the attention span of an infant today, and I completely forgot that you wanted to continue <laughs> your answer to Ignatio's question who had called in and wanted to, to basically have you explain to him who God is. Right. <laughs> well, uh, uh, in one way that could take 15 seconds, and in another way that could take 15 lifetimes. Um I think you have to look at it historically. I like to do this because it's sort of the antidote to all of the stupidities that are out there in the world. Throughout human history, whether it was muddled up with ideas that there are gods or that there is, uh, you know, a, sort of a philosophical force behind the universe, there was always an understanding that matter is not everything there is. And the first one to really intelligently and accurately and correctly put this all together, is probably Aristotle. Because he understood from his, uh, his understanding in the 4th century before Christ in, in Greece, uh, and he, uh, he understood that physical matter could not, physical universe could not explain man, for example. That there had to be something spiritual. And spiritual things need a spiritual cause, just as we look for material things need a material cause. The bodies of the child have a material cause in, from the, you know, from the, the bodies of the parents, as it were. Uh, and likewise with the animal world, with plants and, and all other organisms. Uh, the chemistry of one object is uh, the fruit of some reaction between other objects that there's always this natural material causation that takes place. What is the cause of, of the spiritual things, the things which can't be reduced to matter? You can look around us, and even the secular world uh, would agree that justice is a cause, is something, that love is something, that goodness is something, and many would say evil is something, uh, St. Thomas and Aquinas would not, but there were people who at least see that there's things beyond the purely material. And even in the, in, in the differences between man and animals, that the, something in man takes him well beyond what the animals are due. You know, the whales of the 
porpoises and the and the or the brains of the porpoises and the whales and even the higher primates are every bit as complex and you would think uh, uh, potential to have human intelligence, but they don't. They have a very high native intelligence. Human intelligence is something specific. It's spiritual, and you see that in the in the beauty of music and art and civilization and all the good things which human beings have produced. So Aristotle and others, most philosophers in history, have all taken this perspective that there is something spiritual in us. And Aristotle's point of view was that before there was us, there was an infinite cause, that matter itself needed a cause, that it couldn't just go back endlessly without cause. At the beginning, there had to be something that made beings come into existence. And this had to be true of material being. It had to be too, true of the spiritual goods that uh, he, could, he and others throughout history have found. So God is, initially at least in the thinking of man, is this infinite cause of everything. But Aristotle conceived him as something impersonal. He didn't have a name. He didn't have any, you know, person to him. Already by Aristotle's time, of course, God had revealed himself to Moses a thousand years before that. And so through the Jewish tradition and into the Christian, we have God as a person, as an intellectual being, revealing himself to the world through these two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This is where we encounter the, the, spirit, the, the, the God who is the cause of spirit. Now today, it's very well, everything is caused by matter. Even your brains is just chemicals rubbing together and the neurons passing on the messages and collectively it produces consciousness. Our movies, which even are a great deal of fun to watch, that talk about artificial intelligence and androids and, you know, things like this, uh, are suggestive of a purely material causation of intelligence. Uh, none of that is going to ever be a fruitful because it, it simply can't be. Um, it makes for a good movie, it makes for fun television, but in reality it doesn't explain the world as we see it. So this is the propaganda that's out there, and it's good to have an idea of this distinction between what is spiritual and what is matter. You know, and I would even say that if you are a true scientific mind, as Aristotle was, as the hundreds of great Catholic scientists and philosophers throughout the last two millennia have been, then you can see precisely that material causation is inadequate to explain the world as we see it. Now, evil is another matter, and Revelation gives us the explanation of evil. It's the loss of the good, the loss of good in the world, the loss of good in mankind, and what we continue to do is we can continue to propagate that loss of, uh, that lack of goodness, of the goodness of being through the sins uh, and through all the, the wars and the poverty and other things that go on in the world. Uh, so only the church, really, only Revelation has the answer to the question of who God is. What God is, Aristotle knew that well enough 2,325 years ago. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We'd love to have your phone call today at 833-288-3986. Tom is in Seattle, Washington. He's listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Tom, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Happy uh, New Year and Merry Christmas and Happy Feast Day for whatever saint we have today. And to you as well. Thank you. Two weeks ago, I'd asked Dr. David Andrews if he'd ever read the book Star Maker by W. Olaf Stapleton. Now, the significance of Star Maker is that you look at all the major science fiction, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, even Arthur C. Clarke, it's all based on this one book. Now, C.S. Lewis read it, and by the way, W. Olo Stapleton was a philosophy professor at an English uh, university. He was not in, he wasn't reading Hugo Gernsback or any of those others in the States for science fiction back in the 30s when this work was composed. C.S. Lewis read it and was absolutely terrified of it and wrote his Space Trilogy in response to it. I wonder if anybody over there has ever heard of W. Olaf Stapleton, Star Maker, or many or any of his other uh, compositions. Uh, I certainly well, never have. Um, you know who might uh, be Jimmy Akins on Catholic Answers, who I know is uh, uh, he likes the genre. Actually, I grew up on the genre too, but even so. Uh, science fiction. I, I never read that. I read Asimov's. I read Heinlein. Um, you know, all all the names of my generation. Um, but that that's not a name I ever heard. Uh, is there some particular thesis in there that we ought to be scared of that uh, you're suggesting uh, Lewis was afraid of? Okay, I'll make it fast. Please do. <laughs> The image of God that is portrayed at the end of Star Maker after this lone Englishman goes on this incredible voyage throughout not just this universe, but multiple universes, without a spacecraft, mind you, but that's a detail, that's just a minor detail, really, is not the same kind of thing encounter with God as we see in, say, Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy slash Paradiso. It's anything, it, it, like I said, Lewis was horrified by this work and wrote his epic in it all, but the thing is, Star Maker isn't really science fiction at all. It's more of a speculative philosophical work. I emailed Jimmy Aiken about it a few weeks ago, but haven't received a reply yet, so okay. I guess I just got to... Well, you just have to with... hold the course, probably. Um... Yeah, well, you still haven't answered my question. Can you put in one sentence what is supposedly the horrifying part of this book? It is not the benevolent, loving, compassionate deity that Dante or others have uh, described, and as we know him in in the Church for the last uh, few millennia. Well, uh, I don't think any rational person takes a fictional uh, author as a, uh, a guide to their understanding of the universe. Uh, he could be a philosopher, you know, philosopher that he may have been, there would be a thousand or 
10,000 philosophers over the generations who would contradict his argument. I think human beings in general, there is, we speak of a census fidelium in the church, and that is that there is also a census, uh, you might say, a census, census natura in the world as well, that people have a natural sense of these things. Uh, I think all an author, whether he's a literary author, can take some themes and sort of, um, you know, muse on them perhaps. I, I think the error in this is the one which Aristotle and St. And Tom, Thomas uh, in about a two-millennium continuity would agree on. And that is, the world is basically good, and what is in it is a defect of that goodness. Uh, what you're suggesting is rather that, that the world is evil, uh, and there's just no, uh, no evidence of that. Uh, evil is a, is a defect in things. If your car doesn't work, it's not because cars can't work and can't be good. It's because there's something wrong with it. If man doesn't work, it's not because man can't do good or be good or produce good in art, music, and civilization and so on. Uh, but there's some defect in, in his works. We call that sin, or the civil community calls it crime. Uh, you take something which belongs to somebody else. You take their life, which is theirs and not yours, to take. Uh, that's that's a moral uh, defect in you. I think the nature of goodness is self-evident, and I think anybody who would argue the contrary is uh, not only arguing against uh, many generations of human beings, but it, it's a kind of insanity to make evil the foundational principle of that which is when it's quite evidently good. So that's my answer to that, and maybe Jimmy can give you a more specific answer on Star Maker that I can. Thanks, Tom. We appreciate the phone call today. Um, you know, I want to recommend a program for you. If I don't know how many of you ha are aware of our, our uh, 24-hour-a-day lineup on the weekends as well here at EWTN Radio, and we've got a program called Stories from the Heart that airs Sunday mornings at 9.15 Eastern. And you know, Colin, they tell you that one of the most important things you can do to your children in their formative years is to read to them. And, uh, you know, I think that there is this desire to be read to that really never, ever gets mm -hmm. quenched within us. You know, I think we reach certain milestones in our life where we think that, that we're too old or too mature for that kind of a thing. I remember one of the most joyful experiences of my life is when I was in seventh grade, we had a homeroom teacher that whenever we had a homeroom uh, meeting, which was, you know, at various times during the school year, uh, we would, we would you know, have mm -hmm. a special period where we'd have 15 minutes. She read to us uh, a novel throughout the course of the year during those mm -hmm. little five- and ten-minute homeroom sessions, and it was really one of the most <laughs> glorious experiences. And, you know, when you're forced to do it, you don't have to worry about whether anybody thinks it's cool to be read to or not because everybody's in the class and everybody's going to hear it. So uh, it was just wonderful. And Sandra McDivitt does a great job. She features uh, Catholic inspirational stories that are uplifting, uh, bringing the heart and soul closer to God. These stories that she reads span the late 1800s right up to present day. That's Stories of uh, from the Heart uh, with Sandra McDivitt, Sundays, 9.15 Eastern Time, a.m., uh, right here on EWTN Radio. There's more than one occasion when I would pull into the garage with that on the radio and would sit in the car until the story was over. <laughs> My wife would wonder what had happened to me. 
Um, at any rate, back to the phones we go. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Robert is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on their Sacred Heart Radio. Robert, you are on with Colin Donovan. Okay, thank you. Um, I uh, am wondering what Catholics mean by original sin, because I have the impression it's inherited from Adam, and Mary would have the Immaculate Conception, so she didn't have it. Yeah, that's that's essentially correct. I mean, we'd use a little, a little bit technical terminology to describe it. Basically, uh, it 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 actually tucks right in uh, in some sense with the conversation I had with uh, the gentleman right before you, um, and that is. God's intention always in making things good, we have this in the book of Genesis, we have that after each of the days of creation, understood as the major classes of creatures, um, God said it was good. So God creates good. He created uh, human nature, uh, Adam and Eve, and he called it good. And he gave them, because they are rational creatures, uh, and in this way, that's the spark of, of his uh, intellect, as it were, of his divine mind in human beings, that this this difference that I've been talking about in, in a couple questions today, a couple answers. And so we have this element in us, but that element requires that we act in accordance with it to be fully ourselves, to be, as it did to use an expression you hear, I guess, in different contexts, all that you can be, in this case, to be man, and all that man can be, and in that man, male and female, of course, um, they failed. So what God had intended was that in communicating human life to their subsequent generation, that this gift of the their moral integrity, their spiritual and that and physical and material integrity would be also communicated. And in losing that, and in losing that grace for future generations, what they get is this a defect. In other words, the unity, if we look at our own nature, we see that we have feelings, they pull us different ways. There's nothing moral moral or immoral in feelings. They are attractions to certain goods. Uh, you know, the good of food and drink or the good of, of sexual activity or uh, the good of knowledge. Uh, in, you know, any of the spiritual goods can be goods that we're attracted to. We're attracted to, be, we're attracted to justice. We're talking about spiritual things like knowledge and justice and, and love of neighbor and so on. We have that as a built-in attraction to us. But we, Adam and Eve had that in their integrity, body and soul. And so that was broken by their sin. And it's the inheriting of that brokenness which the next generation of human beings and then on down to us that the church refers to as original sin. Uh, these are analogous terms. It speaks of guilt. It speaks of sin. You might put those in quotes because it's not like Adam and Eve go out in each generation and do this again and again. They did it once when they were entrusted with the future of the race and failed. And so we have an inherited condition. We know that from our daily life, because don't we suffer from inherited 
social and moral conditions from our families. Uh, the spread of alcoholism from parents to children by the bad example, and even perhaps by the constitutional inclination that is passed on. This is an inherited defect. It's not a perfection in, uh, in, in, in the parents, and it's, that defect is handed on. So in the same way, this general defect, this, this disintegration in human nature between spirit and soul and body, and particularly between man as a whole and God, what we speak of as divine life or grace in the soul of the individual, that's what's inherited. That's what the characteristic of original sin is. Now, when the Church then speaks of Mary not having this, the fathers of the Church saw a parallelism between Adam and Eve, representing the, all of the uh, human race, the, the, the foundation and parentage of the human race, the parent, first parents, and uh, Christ, who was to be the new Adam, in other words, to set us off again and restore humanity, and Our Lady. Christ took his human nature from her, and so in anticipation, as Pope Pius IX said in, in declaring what was already a received teaching of the Church over many, many hundreds of years, uh, the Immaculate Conception, declared that she, by a God the Father in anticipation, as it were, of the cross, gave her the divine life at the moment of her conception. And we could say that's because Christ was to be the new Adam and he should receive from that single parent who gave him human nature all that can be communicated, just as Adam and Eve would have, she did. And so that's what the church means by that, that mankind was founded or refounded really in Christ and Mary as the new Adam and the new Eve. And now we are refounded through baptism. We are inserted into that mystery of the recreation of human nature through our baptism, uh, not at our conceptions as in Mary's case, in her unique case, but through our insertion into Christ into the church, and into his passion, death, and resurrection through baptism. Colin, have a great weekend. I will try, Jack. You too. All righty. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again with another full week, starting with Father John Tregilio on Monday. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.